I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome Manhattan District Attorney candidate and public defender Eliza Orleans to our broadcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here. Let me ask you, Eliza, the current district attorney has slow walked the investigation into Donald Trump's corruption, and it remains to be seen if he's still waiting for permission of the United States Supreme Court to proceed. And you're running on a platform that if you commit corrupt acts, you should be punished for them, which we know did not occur during the Vance administration and so far still hasn't occurred. So what would you do from day one if the status remains what it is today, which is no accountability so far? Listen, as you said, one of the huge points of my platform is holding the powerful and privileged accountable. And I think it's far past time to restore trust and integrity to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which Cy Vance has really undermined during his tenure by allowing certain people to be above the law. And, you know, in my mind, no one is above the law. And those who are wealthy, powerful, well-connected, even if they have those things, you know, and maybe even more so, they should be held accountable if they break the law. And I think people are enthused by Cy Vance going after Trump's tax returns. And, all, you know, there's been a lot of press around it. But I think what, what it fails to recognize is that Cy Vance could have gone after the Trumps back in 2012, 2013. He declined to prosecute all of these cases. And, you know, but for Cy Vance not going forward with those prosecutions, maybe we would never have had a President Trump. Those counterfactuals are really fascinating to me. And I think they are important, not just in historical theory or for scholarly investigation. The fact is that Vance received a campaign contribution from Donald Trump's lawyer and shortly thereafter terminated the investigation of his children and his company. That's just the fact. And I think that your campaign with Biden presiding in, in office now uh, will be jolted further if this federal administration under the stewardship of Attorney General Garland um, does not um, sit idly by and, and, and does commit from day one that any corrupt acts that were in violation of the Constitution or of law will be prosecuted. Do we need Attorney General Garland, once he's confirmed to say that, so we know that that's happening? I mean, listen, would it be great if we could also restore the integrity to the Department of Justice? Absolutely. But it doesn't need to be said for it to happen locally. You know, as we know, presidential pardons do not apply to state crimes. And, you know, Donald Trump, his associates, Anyone who has committed a crime in New York State, and specifically in Manhattan, will be subject to potential prosecution by the district attorney. And so I think, you know, it's it's incredibly important that there be this accountability, that, that it's well known that that accountability is going to exist because that is how we will get people to trust that again. And the accusation sometimes flies around that, oh, you know, progressive prosecutors are motivated by politics and their decision making. But I think, you know, everything about the situation that has occurred between 
Cy Vance and Donald Trump and, and everything else really demonstrates that the exact opposite is true. You know, Cy Vance has for his entire career avoided prosecuting cases against the rich, against the powerful, against the well-connected when they would be challenging or carry political risk. And then once it becomes popular to do so or politically advantageous, he then has brought prosecutions in certain circumstances. What is your 100 days agenda? There are so many things that need to happen. Um, You know, I think what people are starting to wake up to is just how much power local and state prosecutors hold in our criminal legal system and how they've played such a massive role in driving the crisis of mass incarceration by overcharging, over-prosecuting, you know, using incarceration as a first rather than a last resort. And it has not made communities safer. In fact, it's driven racial disparities, it's aggravated socioeconomic inequality, and it's really, you know, destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands, millions of people with impunity. And so, you know, I think that What's so critical is that, you know, our next district attorney be someone who has a vision for bringing transformational change to that office, who's prepared to lead and make changes from day one. And so, I mean, I can start listing all of the things that I'm, that I'm desperate to do, but I think that the main things are we need to, we need to decarcerate. We need to, you know, New York is locking up far too many people and they're predominantly black and brown people, lower income people, you know, LGBTQIA folks, people with disabilities. And what we need to be doing is making incarceration the last resort, making sure that people have the help and treatment that they need, you know, not locking people up because they're experiencing mental health issues or substance use disorder or poverty. Um, we need to end cash bail, you know, money bail, wealth-based detention is completely wrong. It's unjust. It doesn't keep us safe. Um, so that's, you know, on my immediate day one list, not first hundred days, immediate. Um, and then we need to refuse to prosecute a whole host of low-level nonviolent offenses um, that just trap typically poor people of color in a cycle of injustice. Uh, and that includes, you know, all drug possession cases. That includes decriminalizing sex work uh, and and many other crimes that we don't even necessarily think of as crimes per se, but that are charged as crimes, you know, things like um, it's an unclassified misdemeanor to lay down on a park bench in New York City. It's called obstruction of a park bench. And so it's, it's illegal to lay down on a park bench. And yet, if I, a white woman, laid down on a park bench in Manhattan, likely no police officer would ever approach me. And if they did, they'd probably come up to me and say, Miss, is everything all right? Do you need something? Is there something I can do to help you? And that's just not the way my clients are treated. You know, they're, they're violently taken off a park bench, face down on the sidewalk, hands behind their back and carted off to jail for the night for the same conduct. So we need to stop prosecuting those things. We need to invest in communities. We need to shrink the footprint of the district attorney's office, but we also need to hold those who are powerful accountable. And that includes, you know, not just the, the bad landlords and CEOs and, and, um, employers and, but also police, you know, also law enforcement who are engaged in violence, physical violence on the streets, but also perjury within the courthouse. You know, they walk into a courtroom and say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing about the truth? I do. And then they get on the stand and in front of a judge or a jury or a grand jury, they lie and there are no repercussions. And not only that, they then get to continue to be witnesses against people and, and result in their incarceration. 
What would community policing look like in Manhattan and New York City broadly if you were to if you were to undertake that kind of transformational reform you're describing? So I mean I think that we shouldn't be tasking police officers with jobs that they shouldn't be doing. So it's about investing in communities and not investing in the police, not having police do jobs like respond to mental health crises. Um, you know, we've spent billions of dollars of our New York state budget on policing surveillance and punishment instead of fostering, you know, healthy and safe and equitable communities. Um, and so I think that our criminal legal system should be focused on perpetrators who do real harm and we should be reallocating resources to support people and services in marginalized communities. We should put that money back into, you know, social services for mental health, domestic violence and homelessness. We should be funding schools, hospitals, housing, and food. Those are the things that keep us safe. And I think when we have, when we're trying to really think about creating systemic change, we have to recognize that that means the whole system has to change. And that's an, essential step towards achieving these goals. I mean, as a public defender, I would routinely represent clients who were dealing with mental health issues. And when the police responded to these issues, they would usually escalate the situation. They were not trained to deal with it. This was not something that we should even want them to be handling, uh, nor should they want to be handling that. And so we need to be investing in programs where where we have people who are who are able to respond to mental health crises responding to them the kinds of alliances that you would be seeking to forge, would they be largely local and state or federal as well? I think that's an interesting question. Um, the, in the immediate term, I think most importantly is making sure that the people who I would be tasked with representing, you know, the people of the state of New York and the, the, the County of New York, meaning the borough of Manhattan, would be the most important thing. So I would want to, you know, have alliances with a lot of local community groups, a lot of organizations that that are on the ground doing the work. But I think uh, nationally, it's also really important to have alliances with other progressive prosecutors who are doing the hard work of transforming a system that is based in systemic racism, that is, you know, based in the oppression of people. And it's very hard to dismantle something that has been so rooted in the status quo for 400 years. Um, so I think that having alliances with people who are doing that work is really important. And I think there are DAs across the country who have really been so inspiring in the work that they're, that they're doing, you know, people like Larry Krasner and Rachel Rollins and Chase Boudin, um, who are really making this happen. Um, and so I think it's probably more that than than federal, um, but I do hope that you know that we can that we can push the federal government to to also take on these same fights and to prioritize human rights and human dignity. Um, you know, I've, I'm calling on President Biden to use his executive powers to end the death penalty federally. He can do that. He can do that on day one. You know, so I think there are a lot of things that can happen on the federal level that will have an impact on the state level. Let's just speak technically for a moment. As I understand it, Vance is waiting for the Supreme Court 
to give him basically the authority to proceed further with the grand jury and potential prosecution of Trump or the Trump associates. Um, How do you expect that situation to evolve and, and what steps are you prepared to take in the event that Vance creates a legal predicament in which he has neutered the city's ability to act. So I want to tread lightly here because I think that it would be irresponsible for me to state with certainty what I would do without having all of the facts in front of me, without having been privy to the investigations that are ongoing. Um, So I think that it's important to note that you know, my belief is that no one is above the law and that I will make decisions that will not be politically motivated, that will hold people accountable who are powerful people like Donald Trump and, and prioritize that in my administration. But I don't think that I can actually comment on or, um, you know, say what is specifically happening in the case, given that I don't have the facts in front of me and that, you know, the, the likelihood is I will be taking over that investigation. It wasn't just his failure to pursue the investigation before Trump became president. It was also his unwillingness to really own the investigation and his legal authority once Trump was president. And as over these past years, uh, really going back to the Supreme Court when legal scholars and most lawyers and jurists said that was an unnecessary step to go back to the Supreme Court to carry out the business of his office. So I'm just anticipating what the, the, the situations could be in these coming months. We should not presume anything about what Cy Vance will do, because I think Cy Vance has shown us time and time again, whether it was with the Trumps, whether it was with Harvey Weinstein, whether it was with Jeffrey Epstein, he's been a person who has consistently given passes to the wealthy, well-connected, powerful people uh, whose cases have come across his desk and has been reticent to pursue cases that would be politically difficult, that would be challenging, that would bring press to his office, you know, in in that regard. And so, you know, I, I certainly don't think he can necessarily be counted on to to go forward. But I do think that depending on who we elect as the next Manhattan district attorney, you know, hopefully it will be someone like me who has committed to holding people accountable. Can you just give our listeners a sense of the calendar for this coming municipal election? Yes. So our election is June 22nd and the primary is the election because here in Manhattan, we elect Democrats, you know, registered Democrats outnumber registered Republicans eight to one. And so the primary release has been determinative. Um, What I tell people is that not all Democrats are created equal and we need to make sure that we are electing someone who will stand up in court every day and say on behalf of the people of the state of New York and actually act in such a way that they are representing the people of the state of New York and not just over prosecuting and over incarcerating poor people or people of color for low level offenses, for drug possession, you know, for jumping turnstiles, but really holding those who are, who are perpetrating real harms accountable. So I think that, um, 
it's going to be an interesting race to see how it plays out, you know, as opposed to the rest of the city elections that are happening in June. We are governed by the state because we are technically the New York County District Attorney's Office. So it's the same as if we were running in Westchester County or Onondaga County or Suffolk County. Uh, and so New York State has not adopted ranked choice voting. So you, and there's no runoff. You just win, you know, whoever gets the most votes wins. You can win by one, one vote with, you know, 12 and a half percent of the vote. It doesn't matter. Uh, so it's a, it's going to be a very intense election. And then we're also electing a new mayor, a new city controller, a borough president. There are 35 city council seats up term limited out. So there are hundreds and hundreds of candidates running in New York City right now. So it's going to be a very busy next five months and two days. And is there a mayoral candidate who is most aligned with your vision for the district attorney's office? I have not yet weighed in on the mayoral. I think there are a number of really strong candidates and I'm looking forward to seeing how that will play out. And especially because the way in which they handle the NYPD will have a huge impact on the district attorney's office and the way in which, you know, we're able to operate. So I think I'm looking very much at the way they're talking about policing and how they're going to deal with that, because we know Bill de Blasio has been completely ineffective when it comes to dealing with the NYPD. And I think they have ranked choice voting, so I can have like a top five in their race, but I, I haven't really weighed in, even though there are a lot. From your experience so far, we know that Andrew Yang recently suspended in-person campaign activities. What has it been like to campaign during the pandemic? And are there specific things you've seen that as district attorney, you would like to correct immediately uh, just based on like you were describing with the park bench, uh, things that upon assuming office in what will likely still be the pandemic, you would ensure that these things are changed ASAP. Campaigning during the pandemic has been wild. I launched my campaign back on March 5th. So everything we anticipated being able to do throughout the course of my campaign, within one week of launch, we were fully shut down, fully remote, and have gotten very good at the art of the Zoom razor. Uh, and I have really done very little in person because I think that the priority has to be keeping New Yorkers safe. And that includes myself, my staff, my volunteers, and of course, my, my constituents. But in terms of taking office in the midst of a pandemic and thinking about what a district attorney can do. Uh, I'd love to tell a quick story if we have time about a, a former client of mine. So I represented a man who I will call James for the purposes of this story. And I think his story really embodies why we can't afford to wait when it comes to changing the DA, but also just changing the system as a whole. So I represented James for over two years. He's a young man, should have his whole life ahead of him. He loves to read. And every time he came to court, he'd always have a book in his hand. And he was fighting a fairly serious substance use disorder and also had a number of medical conditions that made him pretty vulnerable. And despite our pleas for mercy, Sy Vance decided to send James to prison. 
And I remember on the day of his sentencing, James begged for another chance. He looked at the judge and the DA and just said, please, please don't give up on me. Please give me another chance. Well, I found out very like in the midst of the pandemic that James had not been transferred upstate, you know, despite getting the state sentence, he was sitting on Rikers Island in the Northern Infirmary Command, uh, which is where they send the sickest people and basically being condemned to die. Um, you know, as we know, people entering our jails and prisons are some of the most vulnerable in our society. And during incarceration, that vulnerability is really exacerbated by tightly confined spaces, inadequate access to medical care, unsanitary conditions, you know, no soap, 30 to 40 people sharing a toilet, mess halls where people eat shoulder to shoulder, no masks, and hand sanitizers literally contraband while you're incarcerated. It's alcohol-based product, cannot even have it. Um, and then there's, of course, no ability to social distance and jails are incubators and there's no way to keep disease from spreading. And so even when the pandemic was at its worst in New York City, the infection rate at Rikers Island was 10 times that of New York City. So, you know, my former client, James, was basically being condemned to die because of a substance use disorder. And his case wasn't some outlier or some exception that proves the rule. It, it really just is so ordinary in Vance's Manhattan. And, you know, I've spent over a decade going toe to toe with the Manhattan DA's office. And we've had these same problems for as long as I can remember, but COVID has really exacerbated them. And so, you know, even at the beginning of my candidacy, I was like, oh my God, this has never been more important to talk about these issues. And it affects every single one of us because it's public health 101. And we know that COVID doesn't stop at prison walls and the boundaries between our communities and correctional facilities are porous. So the fates of the people who live in our city and the people who are incarcerated are inextricably intertwined. You know, the, the virus doesn't care which side of the wall of the jail you happen to be on. And so DAs can have such a massive impact on this. And this is why when I talk about decarceration, it's just so urgent. Like we must decarcerate and we must do it now. People have literally died. We've had multiple COVID-related fatalities, um, you know, during the pandemic. And one was a 53-year-old man who was there on a technical parole violation. He had, you know, either missed curfew or had dirty urine or, you know, for smoking marijuana. And, and he died at Rikers Island from COVID. So this matters more than ever. And so having someone who doesn't just continue to perpetuate this lock them up, throw away the key mentality, which doesn't keep us safe, will lead to real transform transformational change uh, for everyone in the entire city of New York. Thanks for sharing that story, Eliza. And I wish you and your campaign uh, all good health and success as you embark on this. Um, thank you for your insight today. Absolutely. It was great chatting with you.